Welcome to Wemcast, the home of extreme medicine. I'm Mark Hannaford, the founder of World Extreme Medicine. In this episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Shona Pandwa, a physician, an aquanaut, a martial artist, a pilot, an aspiring astronaut with her eyes firmly set on space, the moon, and possibly even Mars. So, Shauna, it's absolutely brilliant to get to talk to you again. I know how busy you are right at the moment with um, with your clinical work, um, but you have the most extraordinary career and drive towards your ambition and your goal. And I thought it would be great to be able to catch up with you and share some of your insights and sort of some of your um, learnings with the the people who listen to this podcast. First off, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. Um, it's it's a real pleasure to be here. I've, you know, you've had some amazing guests on this podcast, so I'm honored to be amongst them now. So for those who don't know me, my name is Dr. Shauna Pandya. I'm a physician in general practice and ER from Canada, um, and I also have a interest in space and space medicine. So um, I am a, a citizen scientist astronaut candidate with a not-for-profit astronautics group called Project Awesome. We do really cool stuff like um, test spacesuits in zero gravity and in water crash landing scenarios. I'm an aquanaut. Um, I'm a researcher, speaker, pilot, martial artist, skydiver, um, scuba diver. Um, it's it's quite a long, fun list. Um, and I'm also the VP of Immersive Medicine um, at Luxonic Technologies, which is a VR, AR technology development group. That is one CV that you just sort of reeled off there. Um, and it'll be interesting to explore how those different elements all fit into each other. When you were younger, was did you want to be a doctor? Was that your defined career path? Or did you have a slightly wider view of where you wanted to be? Yeah, definitely. I had a bit of a wider view. Um, I... Um... I, like a lot of kids, I wanted to be an astronaut, but I just never really grew out of it. Um, and, you know, my first, I grew up in the 90s in the era of the the Canadian shuttle astronauts. Um, and so the first Canadian woman in space was Dr. Roberta Bonder. And she, you know, I just looked at her career and I was so inspired by everything she did. Um, and that really set the stage for me for everything I did next, because um she she was a physician, a neuro-ophthalmologist, and, um, and an astronaut. So I thought, okay, well, there's my path. I will go be a physician. It's what inspired me to do my first degree in neuroscience. It's what made me want to be a neurosurgeon when I was in high school, um, and then ultimately be an astronaut. So um, definitely the... The space interest was what came first, and then medicine followed. And you've also got quite an interest. In fact, we met um, whilst we were running a course on the the remarkable Aquarius Reef Base in Florida, which, of course, is used for NASA as uh, analog training for the International Space Station. Diving and being outdoors has always been part of your your biography as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So that course was a dream because Aquarius Reef Base, where the NASA NEMO or NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations um, missions are run, was, you know, it's one of the world's only undersea laboratories. And so to be able to spend a night there was definitely a bucket list item. And then, uh, you know, like you say, I've always been interested in the outdoors. Um, You know, I grew up being a girl guide here in Canada. I did outdoor ed. We did Everything from, you know, your basic sleeping out in a tent and camping to taking younger kids. Um, and we were as young as 14 when we were leading these these kids on camping trips and teaching them how to camp. 
um, to the more fun stuff like sleep, building a Quincy out of snow and digging it out and sleeping in it, um, building a lean to, uh, you know, lots of fun experiences growing up that really um, teach you about what it means to be in the outdoors, what it means to um, build build a, a team, even if it's a, a team of two that you're a team of four that you're going camping with and, um, you know, teaching that love of outdoors to to others. Do you think that um, love of outdoors and working in teams has, has actually impacted and improved your clinical career? I would say it definitely has, and it's actually come full circle because, um, you know, now as now that I'm an attending physician, I'm really coming back to wanting wanting to be in these environments again, you know, and that's where this whole love of extreme um, extreme medicine, extreme environment medicine comes in. It's you know, it, it, they they feed into each other. Definitely, it spurred um, you know how I approach medicine, trying to be resourceful. Um, trying to do what I can with what I have, and then also bring that mentality back to the outdoors to pro- to provide medical care there. And do you think um, inevitably working in the outdoors, generally you're working as a, either a small group of people, but working generally in a team on an expedition, is it, has it improved your ability to, to lead teams and to communicate with people in a clinical setting and with indeed your patients as well? Yeah, I would say so. I would say that actually kind of spurred my my adult camping trips, which by which I mean my analog missions into ice or isolated and confined extreme environments. And it's just been a natural evolution, which then feeds back into everyday life. And so um, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, space is really, really hard. It's dangerous and it's expensive. Um, and so, so we need to train as much and know as much about uh, interacting in such an environment before we actually go to space. And so, so the the camping trips, quote unquote, that I've done in in adult life um, have been to these iced environments. Um, so I've been to the Mars Desert Research Station, which is real life on fake Mars. I've been there twice. Um, so that's in the middle of the Utah desert. It's a Mars habitat. Um, and then I've also been done an underwater analog aquanaut mission at the Jules Undersea Lodge. And it's sort of exactly like we were talking about. It's that mentality of, you know, building your team, building your crew, trying to, um, you know, do what's best for the mission and the team and taking those lessons learned from, you know, what started, started off as an innocent camping trip as we, uh, you know, as a kid. And uh, definitely those lessons have made me a better team member. And then like you were saying, it comes back into everyday medicine when I'm, um, you know, communicating with my small teams in the ER, you know, it's um, the exact same, it's the exact same mentality. We're trying to achieve a common goal. We're trying to communicate clearly and we're trying to do what's best for um, the mission, which in this case is patient care. In terms of those analog missions and and the isolation of, of the missions themselves, What's for you been personally the biggest challenge about those deployments? Oh gosh, um, it's hard to say. I think there's, um, it's challenging for sure. We don't, you know, it's, you know, if it were easy, I think more people would do it, but I wouldn't say it's, uh, you know, it's, it's challenging in a positive way. Um, there's a term in psychology and positive psychology called salutogenesis. And it's looking at that growth mindset. It's looking at what what positive attributes does 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 challenge and hardship and challenging environments offer. And so, you know, you can look at it one way and say, oh, this is going to be challenging. I'm going to be away from my 
friends and family and loved ones. Um, I'm not going to have immediate communications in certain cases. Um, you know, where we're confined indoors. And if we go outdoors, we have to wear protective gear, whether it's simulated um, life, uh, whether it's simulated uh, spacesuits or whether it's, you know, dive gear. Um, so there's there are challenges in that respect, but it's never, you know, I think if you focus on that as in, oh my God, this is going to be so hard, you're really setting yourself back at the starting line. And I would say that, you know, for me, I've always viewed this as, um, this is going to be fun. Let's see how this goes. Um, I'm doing this with a team that I that I you know highly respect. That's like family at this point. And um, so I've never I've never gone into this saying, oh gosh, this is going to be so hard. And don't get me wrong, like there there's a lot of planning, a lot of logistics that goes into this. Um, and so for our our Neptune, that was our underwater mission, which stands for Nautical Experiments in Physiology, Technology, and Underwater Exploration. Um, we, you know, there was we we designed the science. We we designed scientific experiment. We designed, um, you know, all the parameters that we would measure. We put that through the IRB. We did the revisions. You know, that was it wasn't easy, but it was still we the entire team looked at that as a positive challenge. So you know. You can, I think that's maybe a good life lesson that, you know, how you view something also determines your, um, maybe your, your probability of success, I would say. And are you the, the type of person that needs um, a challenge in order to, to set your course? I personally never would have phrased it that way, but I'm smiling because um, I would say every single person that knows me would phrase it that way. So yeah, I, you know, I'm extremely, extremely ambitious, I'm told. Um, so I would say based on what others have told me, yes. And I'm always trying to push that limit. I'm always trying to, you know, set really big goals. And when I've reached that one, um, you know, I say, hey, that's awesome. Okay, but now where do we go to next? And how are you? So how are you? And I'm, I guess I'm asking this question because I'm very similarly focused. How are you dealing with, with, with lockdown? I know you're busy with your clinical career, but how are you dealing with, yeah, the frustration of not being able to have freedom of movement and travel? Yeah. You know, for me, um, I think this comes back. This is an extension of what we were talking about in that, you know, how you view something definitely will, will affect how you cope with it and for me um so the art of reframing you know viewing viewing with looking for the silver lining in any situation is extraordinarily important um and so yeah you can say like for me i was scheduled to be traveling pretty much every week until june and beyond um and then you know a month break and then more of the same for 2020 and obviously all of that has been cancelled now um so you know you can look and say oh gosh you know everything has been turned on its head but really um i'm taking this time as a kind of braincation in that the amount of um academic work the amount of um you know just intellectual work that i've had the the luxury of of being able to commit to um during this time you know i'm very very grateful for so i've been given the gift of time which has always been at a premium for me um, and I'm not, you know, I'm very grateful for that. And I, I don't want to, you know, squander that opportunity. So I would actually say I'm busier than normal. 
um, or maybe as busy as usual during this time, um, you know, running uh, till late in the night, um, doing various things like writing papers, um, you know, working on new collaborations, whether it's space medicine, whether it's COVID. Um, so, you know, I think, I think there's a way to view, for me, I've been viewing quarantine, um, you know, I've been uh, with gratitude. And that's not to say that I'm, I'm, I, I don't want to be insensitive to people who do not have that luxury, because I absolutely know there are people who are struggling financially with mental health, who, you know, even, even with people who just have kids, you know, and are trying to go about their work day at home, it's, it's very, very um, challenging. And I want to, I want to acknowledge that. But for me, um, you know, I've been very, very lucky to, to invest more time in intellectual pursuits during the pandemic. Let me um, just dig into that um, reframing phrase that you, you use then. And I, and I appreciate how valuable that is. How, how dogmatic are you about using that? Do you use that on a daily basis? Do you use it at work? Do you, or is it a slightly more expansive model? Yeah, I would say at this point in my life, I am so, um, it's so innately ingrained in me. I don't actually act actively ask myself, um, how do we reframe this? Because I think I'm, I'm, subconsciously doing it at every turn so for example you know whether it's a, a medical trauma that didn't go well whether it's you know a, a flying lesson that didn't go well whether it's with a jump out of an airplane that didn't go well um at every turn I've learned the value and the art of debriefing because the lesson is there's a way to be hard on yourself that's productive and there's a way to be hard on yourself that's destructive um, and you know, you can say, oh my God, I'm horrible. I suck. I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Or you can say, why didn't I get the outcome I wanted? What sequence of events did I do? Did I personally do, um, acknowledging my role in all of this and what needs to change for next time so I have a better outcome and how do I do that? And so, so that's one art, that's one aspect of reframing. And, and then the other part that's become really innate is just, and I think this is probably something that's been lifelong is just gratitude. Um, there's always, always, always something to be grateful for. Um, and so um, the more you practice these, these two, I guess, philosophies, these two mental strategies, you know, just trying to be grateful for something and trying to debrief constructively, I think those fall into the toolkit of being able to reframe. And for me, I've just been doing it so long, I would say that they're they're almost innate at this point. In your clinical setting how often do you get the opportunity to to debrief and and how valuable is that for you and your team yeah that's a that's a great great question because you've touched on something that i would i would posit that we definitely need to do better and that we need to make a conscious effort to um to bring into medicine because um there you know we in aviation, we debrief, we debrief extensively in, in skydiving, we debrief and we debrief extensively in, in the scientist astronaut can, um, uh, astronautics group I'm with, you know, before every microgravity, microgravity flight campaign, we pre-brief and then we debrief extensively as a group. Um, but we don't in medicine. Um, and really when you try to do that, it's viewed as something that's out of the norm. Um, and it's viewed as oh, just another thing for us to do on top of our busy day. And so I really, really try to bring that practice into medicine. Um, it's not it's not universal. And I hope that someday it will be because there's so much value in learning. And the excuse that we as doctors give is that we're oh, we're so busy. We don't have time. But really, when we look at our ultimate goal, which is 
good patient care and safe patient care, I would argue that we have to make the time because we're 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 not doing our job if we if we don't take every corrective action to debrief. So definitely, I work a lot of rural ER. I work with a lot of small teams. Um, even if it's just if even if it's not a formal debrief, but in passing, saying hey, that was great the way you did that, or hey, you know this could be you know maybe we should do it this way in the future. Um, there's always a role for debriefing. Um, and we we need to make a concerted effort to bring that that skill set into medicine. I would say it's and it's come out of various conversations that we've had at the WEM conference and and other places that there are a number of these key interpersonal skills that actually we should be taught at a pre-university level. So debriefing, gratitude, mental fitness, and awareness. Um, that actually, if we arrived in our university careers um, or our jobs with those skills already built in as part of the education system, we would actually probably be, probably perform and also um, be mentally more robust. Yeah, absolutely. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this, actually. You know, if I if I ran a school, you know, what would I teach young kids? And those those are definitely on the list. Critical thinking, emotional intelligence, mental resilience, all of that, they go on the list. Um, you know, there's 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 definitely a lot of things that we can life skills wise, including discipline and organization that we can be teaching kids to to set them up for success in adulthood. And I know emotional intelligence is something that you're very passionate about, but it's quite an easy phrase to say. To, to, um, for you, what does that phrase mean and how do you demonstrate it? So the way I view that is being the adult in the room. And it's, you know, it's hard. It's hard when you when a situation is is stressful, when people are very emotionally invested and passionate about what they're what they're debating about, um, particularly when we look at the current geopolitical um, circumstance of how politics is evolving or or devolving uh, across the planet. You know, people are becoming increasingly polarized, and that's why I would argue it's more important than ever to learn to to detach. And so when I look at emotional intelligence, I for me it means being able to take a step back from your immediate emotional response um, and then not, not have that knee-jerk emotional response. So for example, if you feel angry, you, the knee-jerk response may be to, to yell at someone. Um, but if you, if you take that step back and say, hey, I feel angry, I acknowledge I feel angry, why do I feel angry? What's a constructive way to deal with this? So being able to detach from your feelings and, the, and maybe name the feelings for what they are and then ultimately come up with a, an action-oriented response. To, to conflict and negative emotions rather than coming up with an emotionally oriented response. And in fact, there's, there's some data around this. Um, one of my favorite books um, about psychology and human spaceflight is, is by um, a gentleman uh, by the name of Nick Canis. And he actually shows some data from previous spaceflight that shows that conflict resolution uh, went, went much better when people reacted with action-oriented responses rather than emotionally oriented responses. And in terms of that emotional intelligence and the the techniques that you've learned and be innate in yourself anyway, how important is that as a factor in your everyday medical and clinical life? Yeah, it's extremely important. It's important for, you know, in in medicine, I think we're just now starting to look at aspects of physician burnout and and mental wellness. And, you know, it's not an easy profession. We work long hours. We deal with hard things, life and death. Um, and, you know, 
I think it's been this this a long time coming and it's been a slow evolution towards this is just the way it is towards oh hey you know we need to keep the people who are well who are, whose job it is to keep other people well if we can keep the system going to the next thing is oh you should be resilient to oh maybe the system doesn't predispose you to being resilient and the system needs to change as well um, so I think about it in everything I do. And one thing we haven't talked about yet is psychological resilience um, and and how that factors into any aspect of, of, of life, whether it's living in an ice environment, whether it's medicine. Um, and I, I'm a big proponent of this because the data shows. So, so to take a step back, mental resilience is, you know, that fortitude, that grit, that ability to bounce back when things are tough and the ability to you know, to keep going um, and maybe deal with difficult circumstances in a, in a constructive way. Um, and so psychological resilience or mental grit or whatever you call it, you know, it's easy to think that, oh, some people are born with it and some people, you know, um, just aren't and that's the way it is. But the data actually shows that resilience can be learned um, and it can be broken down into five key traits. So mental rehearsal, impulse control, positive self-talk, positive social supports, um, and then breaking things down. Uh, and so, and so knowing that these are learnable traits, actually, you know, we can work on ourselves to, um, you know, to make ourselves more resilient and we, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not like, it's not like deciding to lift weights and going from zero to, uh, two fifty overnight. It's, it's a step-by-step -step process, but, um, you know, it really matters in medicine because medicine can be very hard um, and learning to to make ourselves resilient sets us up for for long-term um, well-being in a, in a field that can that can have a lot of burnout and a lot of um, uh, issues with with wellness um, and then when we're well you know we can do our job for the team we can be there for for our teammates our colleagues across the profession um, and most importantly the patient a lot of young medics will be listening to this interview wondering how they can um, follow some of the steps that you've taken um, and clearly you're on a, you're going in a very uh, very specific direction lots of them will want to work in humanitarian missions take part in expeditions um, have to do military medicine you know if as a young medic what would be what would be your five top tips in terms of what, you know, how they should approach their career at, at an early stage? Yeah, I think so. I think there's maybe two two things is, you know, how do you how do you achieve really big things? And also, how do you deal with maybe tough scenarios? And I would say based on my experience, you know, set really big goals, because if you don't, if you limit yourself to start with, you're not going to you're not going to get there. So don't limit yourself when it comes to to ambition and dream. But then secondly, set a goal to get there because um, an ambition without a plan is just a dream. It's not a goal. So then set steps to to get there with respect to um, your roadmap. And then also the next thing is, you know, develop a work ethic, develop the best work ethic of anyone, you know, you know, it's, it's so talent, maybe not be something that all of us have, um, but work ethic is, is one, 100 percent something all of us can develop. And then. You know, the value of people, there are no, no one achieves success on their own. You know, when you're looking at, um, when you're looking at astronauts on the International Space Station, they're just the tip of the spear. It's, it's mission control. It's, it's, um, you know, the, the engineers who built the, the, the launch system. 
um, you know, the families who supported them along the way. Um, so no, no man, no woman is an island. So be grateful for the people that you have and then surround yourself by good people. And, you know, also keep up with that positive self-talk because, um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do really hard things, it's never, it's not going to be a smooth road the entire way. Keep up that positive self-talk, but also um, when, when there's tough times, debrief constructively. So I would say those are my, my top tips for, for aiming big and for doing really hard things. You've developed a very sophisticated sort of um, backup to enable your ambitions. Before you started embarking on your voyage, were there icons and people that influenced you in terms of um, wanting to emulate them? And I know Canada itself has an incredibly rich heritage and its astronauts in terms of what they've achieved as individuals, but obviously as, as astronauts in space. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, I I really, um, I love reading about the careers of the astronauts in Canada, because it's not just they're an astronaut, but it's a whole mentality. Because when you look at what it is that they've, they've achieved, um, you know, throughout their lifetimes before being selected, while they were selected, and even afterwards, it's, you know, the, the level of accomplishment is is almost defies imagination. And so, for example, we look at David Saint-Jacques, um, who you know who opened WEM last year from the ISS. Um, he he is a Canadian physician. He's a PhD in astrophysics. He's a master's in electrical engineering from from Cambridge, I think. He's a commercial pilot. Like he had this incredible resume before being selected as an astronaut. He just pursued excellence. Um, and then, you know, someone like Chris Hadfield, who was commander of the International Space Station, you know, he he went above and beyond the call of duty. You know, he would he would outreach. He would, um, you know, sing, uh, you know, David Bowie on the space station. Um, he, you know, and then looking at what what the astronauts have gone on to do um, post retirement from the Canadian Space Agency, they've gone on to become uh, governor general, chancellor of a university, uh, member of parliament. You know, it's. It's not just, I'm only doing this to be an astronaut. I'm doing this because um, in the pursuit of excellence and for the pursuit of good for all. Um, and so even, even if your ambition isn't to be an astronaut or if your ambition is to be an astronaut and you, you um, may be still on that path or you don't get there, it's the pursuit of excellence and the pursuit of good for, for widespread impact, I think, are the lessons that we can take away from looking at these amazing individuals. Um, and you know being inspired by them when's the next canadian astronaut selection process going to be because i'm pretty sure i know the first person who's going to be in the queue yeah you know um so in canada uh while we do work very closely with the u.s um we have only had four selections to date nasa has obviously had a lot more uh so we've had selections i think in 83 92 2009 and um 2016 so right now, NASA just just wrapped up a selection um, in March. Um, so maybe does that bode for something count coming down the Canadian pipeline? Uh, I'm not sure, but you can you can be sure I will apply when the next Canadian selection opens up, um, because to represent represent my country, represent Canada as an ambassador for space would be amazing. Well, I think certainly the the launch next week. Issue, uh, ushers in a new era of space exploration and travel, doesn't it? I mean, the 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 use of a commercial rocket to go to the International Space Station is is surely just the first step in terms of establishing a base on the moon and then 
traveling further to the to Mars, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And so the other the other interesting, inspiring, amazing part of this is commercial spaceflight is is opening up. And you know, what the question I like to ask and ponder about is when space, when access to space becomes ubiquitous, what follows next from opening up that platform? You know, right now it's pilots, it's scientists, it's um um it's doctors who go to space. It's very, very STEM oriented. But once we empower any man or woman to be able to go to space um, and to do it easily, um, how does that alter our use of space? You know, what do the entrepreneurs, what do the artists, what do the athletes, what will they do in space? Um, so I think as we as we look at the dawn of the era of commercial space flight, my hope is. Um, and I believe that this is just the beginning um, of of a lot of good things to come from having access to space as a widespread platform. So, Shauna, given your interests and your portfolio of sort of achievements, you must be considered even amongst your group, peer group to be relative a bit of an outlier, a bit of a, a maverick. Would that be true? Um, I would. Yeah, I would say that my career path has been unusual. Um, I've never been described as, as quote unquote unusual per se, but I would say that that shoe fits very much. I mean, is the, 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 has the phrase maverick ever been attached to your name? No, um, I, I've never been uh, called a maverick before, um, but given the, the association with the movie Top Gun, I'll take it. <laughs> I think there's a, um, there is a culture in medicine, perhaps lesser than in um, other um, career pathways where you're expected to conform and follow a pathway, you know. But I see some of the best clinicians that I come into contact personally, you know, do have quite a portfolio of interests. And actually, expeditions and you know, being in the outdoors and adventure and um, humanitarian, you know, actually seems to make them as individuals better clinicians because they're doing medicine, but they're also doing it outside of their career, and it gives them a sense of um, belonging and purpose, which um, would otherwise not be there. You know, that's a really good point. And I think that touches on the bigger point of the value of supportive environments. So, um, you know, now that you mention it, I was extremely atypical and unusual, even throughout med school in that I, you know, I probably took more time off than anyone um, in medical school, certainly within my class, to go to these space conferences to give talks across the world, to, to intern at NASA. Um, but I did it with the full support of the, um, the medical faculty. And I think that speaks to the value of having the environment that lets you do these things. Because, um, you know, I, I had colleagues at other medical schools where the environment wasn't supportive like that. You know, I had a colleague who had the exact same in NASA internship who got it maybe a year or two before I did. Um, but they said it doesn't fit into our clinical schedule, so we won't let you go. Um, you know, I, I had colleagues at other medical schools who were appointed to the to the UN um, Global Health Committee as a medical student, which is incredibly, you know, prestigious and important and a, a huge achievement as a medical student. But again, because it required them to miss class, it would it, they were told it would be a professionalism issue if they missed class for that. Whereas um, Coming back to my experience in medical school, uh, absolutely going to NASA interfered with my clinical schedule. It, it required me to miss my fourth year comprehensive exam. Um, 
And they just said, okay, as long as you study on your own, we'll let you write the exam later. Um, but we think NASA sounds like a great opportunity. And so when we talk about um, being atypical, we also have to, you know, I personally have to acknowledge the environments that let me be atypical and unusual and do unusual things that were, you know, outside the norm, but also they could see the value in that. Um, they, you know, I was able to do a lot because of the the people who believed in the value of what I was doing. Um, and my my message to to medical schools and educational institutions is support that excellence. You know, see, look outside the box um, because, like we talked about earlier, we as individuals can do great things, but you know, we we have to acknowledge that none of us does this alone. We do it because of the environments that let us. We do it because of the teams that build us. Uh, we do it because of the family and friends that support us along the way. So um, uh, if, I, if I'm unusual, I have to give credit, share that unusual credit with the people who, who've let me be unusual. The people that support you on the way are certainly the people that open your eyes and open the doors to opportunity, aren't they? And I think, um, you know, I get the sense that the Canadian Space Agency will be, will be opening its recruitment doors fairly soon. And um, we want to to wish you the you know the very best of luck in in your in in the first application that you put in because I know it's going to be first on on their desk. Um, but it's been brilliant talking to you, Sean, and I hope that we get to do so again soon. And I hope that we get to get you to present at the WEM conference this year in whatever form that takes. We haven't quite decided how that's going to go yet. Um, but it's I know how busy you are, so thank you for your time today. And you know there's so many topics there that we could pick up and expand on in future podcasts and also about at the conference itself but you're a true inspiration to to younger medics coming up behind you and thank you for sharing your time but also some of your life lessons thus far yeah thank you so much for having me um you know it was my extreme pleasure to be on the on the podcast and yeah i definitely hope to be involved with women whatever format it takes later this year Brilliant. Thank you, Shauna.